The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on the ABC News and columnist for the New Daily. And I am James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are the, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. Well, that was very good. It was. <laughs> Nicely <laughs> harmonised. <laughs> um, so, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, before we get on to our main topics, I just want to note the Alex Jones damages verdict Amazing. in the US. Yes. $965 million. US. US. So about 1.5 Real. Aussie. I know. Billion. Amazing, isn't it? And... Um, uh, that's before punitive damages are declared. Yeah. So there yeah. could be, there could be more. Yes, it it is a one of these classic uh, jury awarded damages that you sometimes see in the US, which are often vastly reduced uh, on appeal when a judge gets hold of it. Um, but I, I I think what's interesting here is that just the way the case unfolded um, so memorably. When uh, all these text messages and emails were handed over to the uh, to, to the prosecution and revealed in court, um, which gave him not a leg to stand on, hmm. uh, and I guess what's um, you know, I mean, how could you argue this thing was a hoax? Oh, what, what a goose! Really kept it. He kept it up too. Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing to think someone would. It's amazing to think someone would do that. So it's impossible to have any sympathy for the idiot, basically. So I'm just thinking that maybe we should have some damages for all the guys on Sky News at night. Maybe, maybe. I, I don't think they've ever done anything quite as nutso as that. But, <laughs> no, uh, no, that's true. But yes, <clears throat> maybe they, you can get a class action going, Alan. Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> it might be salutary is all I'm saying. Yes. No, it is. Uh, we, yes. Stupid <laughs> ideas sometimes have a cost. Well, lies. And I mean, no, but it also shows ideas. the no, but it's it's the limits of free speech, really. Yeah, yeah. Because his his parent company that owns the broadcaster that he goes on is, is called Free Speech. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, not quite Alex. No, not quite free. You can't <laughs> just say anything you like. Exactly. Exactly. Um, now. Uh, you had a big energy summit in the AFR this week. What came out of it? Well, what came out of it was uh, Jeff Dimery, who's the CEO of Alinta Energy. Um, the summit was going quite well. It was pretty optimistic. You know, we've got the 43% emissions reduction target through the parliament. Uh, it's going to be difficult, but we're all on the same track. And then Jeff Dimery from Alinta Energy gets up and basically says, we're not going to make this target. Uh there's so many practical challenges. We can't get enough people and steel and government approvals and everything to build all these renewable projects. They're going to be extraordinarily expensive. And by the way, uh, based on what I can see, energy prices are going to go up 35% next year. And, you know, that put a hole in the optimism of the conference. <laughs> uh, but look, it's it was, in some ways, it's a good reality check. I mean, he was on stage with Mark Collette, who's the CEO of Energy Australia, and Frank Calabria, the CEO of Origin Energy. None of them, neither of them disagreed. And in fact, Collette made the good point that we've got to build uh, three times as much energy infrastructure as we've built in the last two decades. We've got to build that in the next seven years to hit this target. I mean, 
it's impossible. That's right. So they've, they're going We've started too late. In order to meet their targets, they have to get to 82% renewables. Yeah. That's the, that's the task. Yeah. Which, um, With the firming capacity to back that up. Which is so easy to say. They write it in a little report and there it is. But, yeah. you know, yeah. that's um, an entirely different matter to actually do. Well, and of course, we're not the only ones trying to do this. They're trying to do this all over the world, you know. They're trying to... Everybody's trying to make this transition, and so the resources get even further stretched. So, it, it was it was a bit of a, a wake up call, I think, um, and but but you know a necessary one. There's there is cause for optimism. I think there's lots of ingenuity, lots of technology. There's so much money and smart people going through these ideas, and there were some great ideas at the conference. I mean, this guy Saul Griffiths, who's been involved in um, Biden's energy reduction plan. <coughs> he came, did he? He came on a on a motorised, electrified unicycle. Um, a unicycle? A unicycle, yeah, a little platform thing. Oh, don't ask me how you, how it works, but um, he's, and his, his big idea is basically electrifying the home. So yeah. next five years, everyone's got a solar on the roof, a battery, gas Oh, sorry, electric cooking, electric heating. They have to change. Everyone has to change their appliances. Yeah, to and, and their car. And their car. Yeah. And, but um, that's 42% of domestic emissions. And, and he reckons it would cost a government $12 billion, which isn't all that much. As he says, it's a cost of one submarine to, um, to sort of subsidise households to, for the upfront cost. Yeah. It doesn't seem like a really stupid idea. I mean, it's, well, it's a big part of uh, Biden's Inflation Reduction yeah. Act. Yeah. Um, Flat out subsidies to homes. Yeah. So, so we need something like that. I mean, I think that what's been going on here is this complacency that you know you can put out a report, you can have the target, and job done. You know, we've yeah. we've legislated the target, all it, done. We're right. It'll now. happen. It'll happen. Yeah. It'll be fine. It's yeah. in legislation. Yeah. And I think that you know that's what was needed was some sort of wake up call. I mean, I, I think he's. I think the bloke from Alinta is being ignored now. I mean. Everyone's going, oh, that's rubbish, you know. I yeah. think... Um, I mean, look... It, no one wants to know, really. No one wants to know. And, and, and perhaps that 35% tariff increase that we might see next year, governments might step in and say, no, no, we're not going to cop that. But look, he's, he's in the Ford electricity market every day and he said on stage, quite remarkably, that prices had ticked up for 2024 and 2025 to the point where he's going to have to... Macquarie was going to give him a margin call that night to put it to put more collateral against his futures positions in the market. Right. So he, he's not pulling these numbers out of thin air. No. You know, it's not. It, this we're going to see big increases in gas and electricity prices next year, regardless of what happens. So I think the, quite I think what the, governments do about it. I don't know. I think in some ways the Labor Party is um, is uh, I don't know liable or. That fault here because their report, the one that's um, the, the one that informed their policy, a forty three percent reduction and net zero by twenty fifty, yeah, um, all, uh, was actually headlined uh, cutting power costs. Yeah, you know, the whole thing was based on this is a way to cut power costs and uh, and by the way we'll cut emissions. Yeah, and it was kind of this and we'll create jobs. It's like this you know golden well that will future ha- that will happen, but it'll happen over. Twenty years. Well, it, but it isn't going to. But it isn't going to cut power costs. I mean, it is, yeah, that's eventually right. It eventually, will. eventually it eventually will. But it, in the meantime, it won't. Yeah. Well, I mean, because that's right. There's there's two or three or four or five or six or seven years of high costs. 
hmm. coming. And eventually we'll get to this point where we're all using renewable power and that will change the economy in different ways. You know, Guy DeBell, who's now at Fortescue, he got up and said, you know, manufacturing in this country partly became uneconomic because of high energy costs. Well, what if the energy costs are really low in 10 years' time? What does that do to manufacturing? It's a really sort of cool idea. But there's a lot of pain to be got through before we get there. I think that's right. I mean, it's, you know, some of the... We had a woman from Tasgas there, Phaedra Dackett, and, and she's saying, you know, a laundry, a commercial laundry in Tasmania, three times the gas bill next year. I mean, what sort of... Not many companies can cope with that sort of increase on top of wage shortages, wage rises and skill shortages. Well, so. also, but it's just not just businesses, it's households as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, who are also having to cope with higher interest rates. Yeah, so we've all laughed like drains at uh, Liz Truss in, the, in England capping energy prices and, oh, how silly. It's not hard to imagine that governments here are going to have to find some way of subsidising the hardest hit households and businesses. No, I think you're right. And that's unpalatable and it's going to be inexpensive, but I don't see a way around it at the moment. Yeah. So, yes, it was uh, optimism and pessimism all in in one, but fascinating (laughs) stuff. I mean, geez, it's a complex picture, but really there's going to be a lot of money made. A lot of money lost. I'm going to be. I'm going to record a a, um, a thing for the Sunday night ABC News this afternoon, in which I'm talking about the carbon budget. Mm. So, so the targets that they've got actually translate into a, a budget of the number of millions of tons of carbon dioxide that we can emit. Yeah, right. Over the next, uh, I don't know, eight years, and then over the next uh, uh, twenty-eight years. Yeah, right. Um, and the budget. Between now and 2030 is four million three hundred eighty-one, no, four point three eight um, billion right tons right, um, and uh, we're going to spend that budget well ahead of time. Yeah, you know, that's the issue, isn't it? I mean, that's the thing. Yeah, the other conference you attended or watched watched or, yes uh, was the uh, an economic one headlined by Lucy Ellis. The, yeah, the uh, City Australia. Annual conference, um, yeah. Lucy Ellis from the RBA was uh, the the first speaker and gave a pretty wonky technical speech for economists about uh, the neutral interest rate and how the RBA is thinking about this. So yeah. So did you get it? Did you understand it all? <laughs> no, I don't. I didn't understand it all. I've got to confess. But I, I mean, the, the idea of the neutral interest rate is that the RBA and most other central banks think there's an interest rate at which uh, the interest rate is neither growing or shrinking the economy. Yeah. So it's there's neutral. A, there's a, it's neutral, exactly. So there's a perfect rate. And the RBA's basic idea of it's around 2.5%. Well, they haven't said that explicitly, but that's what everybody Well, she had a graph, rate. which I put on the news last night, showing that it's 3%. Right. So uh, I think 1.5% uh, real. No, no. Uh, I don't know. Um, one percent real, yeah. Two percent inflation, right? Okay. Three percent nominal. That's what the, that's what they're saying. Yeah. But she then said it's uh, it's a pole star, not a destination. Yes. And it's sort of they're, they're navigating the narrow path in the faint light of this pole star. It's very poetic, Alan. 
That's what she said. Yeah, she did. <laughs> um, but I, I, which go, which basically says this is a theoretical idea. Yeah. We don't really know where neutral is. There's no marker when you get there, and we probably won't know till after the fact. Exactly. Which so does that make it a useless idea or is it useful in in a in a sort of broad way? Uh, well, it's the sort of thing that economists go on about, isn't it? Some sort of you know they love having a theoretical discussion like that, but it's pretty useless, isn't it? I mean. That basically they're putting up interest rates till something breaks. Yeah, exactly. They're just going to keep going until the unemployment starts shooting up and yeah. uh, spending comes down and everyone sort of goes, oh, crikey, this is terrible, and uh, inflation hopefully starts falling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they have no idea where that is. Well, yeah, interesting you say that because Larry Summers, the former US Treasury Secretary, who's been very critical of the Federal Reserve's uh, transitory inflation idea and has, you know, I guess been proven to be broadly right on that. He has indeed. He, uh, he, he's, he had a really interesting point about the neutral rate of unemployment in America. So he was saying it used to be 4%. So when 4% of people were unemployed, the economy was either growing or contracting. But because of the changes to the labour market there, so people taking early retirement, people having long COVID, people working from home, he reckons it's moved to 5%. And so for the Federal Reserve to get inflation down, unemployment needs to go from 3.5% currently to 6%. That is an awful lot of pain. I well, mean, that, is, that is a recession. That is a recession. He, Absolutely. He, and I mean, I mean that, he's making no bones about that. So he reckons that's the only prescription here. So everyone hoping that the Fed's going to suddenly go, oh, okay, we're doing a bit of damage here. He says, no way, they, they've got to keep pushing on. So they have to, he's saying that they have to cause a recession. They have to cause a recession, yep, absolutely. And, he, and, and the market says the Feds will take rates to a peak of about 4.5%. He says, no, nah, they're going to have to go higher. His, his best guess is. What? That it'll be higher than 4.5%. Did he put a number on he it? He didn't put a number on it, no. Ah, right. No. So, but if it's 5%, You've got to sort of think this through. That the, if it's five percent, the U.S. dollar strengthens against every currency around the world. Well, as it's been doing, as it's been doing, uh, you get these shocks in other parts of the world, a deep global recession, and because the U.S. becomes a safe haven, there's a lot of implications for that right around the world and in the U.S. I mean, you know, it's not going to escape a deep global recession. Well, but it's an absolute shocker if the U.S. has a recession and it's a safe haven. Yeah, like it's. Double whammy. It's yeah. a double, yeah, double whammy. Really. So I mean, it's hard to see how we're getting out of this, how we're going to avoid a, quite a deep recession. Because because if we sort of if we allow if Fed if they allow inflation to keep going, then you know we're going to have an issue with debt and and you know inequality is going to keep rising. So. And also, if the Reserve Bank doesn't keep up with the Fed, um, the Australian dollar will go to 50 cents. Yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> so I mean... It, and, and that worsens inflation. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it went to... The, the Aussie dollar went to 50 cents in 1990, 1998, 9, uh, in the Asian crisis. Yep. Um, that was 97. Yep. 97. Yeah. Okay. Well, so... Yeah. Well, so we've been around there before, but... And it wasn't – I mean, we didn't have a recession then. No. No. Um, so, you know, maybe maybe going to 50 cents is okay. All the manufacturers and exporters are 
laughing. Yeah, yep. Uh, yep, but we're importing inflation, as you say. Importing inflation, yeah. So it's a wicked problem. I don't know what the answer is at the moment. Uh the other, I mean, uh, the other. Have you got any other topics that you had in your mind? Well, look, I, I mean, I guess one other thing. It's AGM season, right? So we've seen a first few couple of big AGMs this week: Telstra on Tuesday, CBA on Thursday, and the CBA, uh, the CBA was in person. You mean Wednesday? So, sorry, yes, yeah, CBA on Wednesday. The CBA annual general meeting was in person, no hybrid meeting, which caused a bit of consternation on the floor of the meeting because there was people who were saying, well, it's a long way to come, it's expensive to travel, I might be elderly or sick or disabled. Which is fair enough. Fair enough. Um, but interestingly, CBA sort of, uh, it was a bit of karma there because CBA's meeting was uh, memorably interrupted by a choir of... Uh, Protesters, oh, uh, right. climate protesters. So uh, having an in-person meeting um, does have its downsides. Perhaps that I don't know if that wouldn't have happened if they had gone hybrid, but uh, it was an interesting start to the meeting. What are they protesting about? Climate issues. Yeah, I mean all bank AGMs are now basically ninety percent of the discussion is about climate. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Um, so that was a. Well, maybe not ninety, but a, a, a well over half. And well, I don't think it's not, I don't think it's ninety percent climate if Stephen Main shows up. Because, no, no, that's because true. he's uh, you he's know. got a broad slate of issues. <laughs> he does, yeah. But I mean, AGM season is going to be interesting this this uh, year because we didn't get much of an update at the full year results season in August from how companies are travelling. So now we're a few months down the track. Interest rates are starting to bite. Well, they should be starting to bite. So the trading updates that companies give at these AGMs are going to be very closely watched. Yes. Yeah. Um, they are. Well, there was one I saw the other day, Baby Bunting, I think. That was their results, actually. But they, uh, No, that was an AGM. That was an AGM, yeah. yeah. And, they, and the, the, shares, the shares dropped 20%. Yes, they had to worry about their margins. And yeah. So that's a good example. One other, one other interesting one for you. I spoke to a guy yesterday called Bill Browder, who is a former fund manager... Yeah. He uh, used to run money in Russia, and he was eventually barred from the country, and he's become a big thorn in Putin's side. Um, Has he? Yeah, he's an uh, interesting, interesting guy, and his lawyer was famously killed uh, in, in Russia, and he, he's sort of campaigned on human rights and freezing orders for governments around the world. We've got one that was introduced by Kimberly Kitching, the late Kimberly Kitching. Anyway, uh, I asked him about, A, Elon Musk, you know, these reports that Elon Musk is talking to Putin about a peace deal, and uh, Musk and, and Russia have denied that. But his point was that, you know, there, there should be no deal here. The thing that Putin wants at the moment is a chance to rearm and take a breather and come back harder again. So now's the time to keep pushing. So it's interesting in the context of global markets, we're seeing the energy issues still playing out. You know. Well, uh, and it's worth noting that the, the, the war actually escalated this week with the bombing of the Kirsch Bridge in, Kirsch, Kirsch Bridge in Crimea, yeah. which he then retaliated mm. and started killing civilians. And um, so it seems to have gone up to another level now. Yeah, well, Browder's point is that, I mean, he's getting desperate. This war was supposed to be over in a couple of days or a couple of weeks. Yeah. Now it's continuing on. That, that bridge in Crimea was actually quite a big symbol for Putin because sure. it was supposed to say, here's the connection between Russia and Crimea. And it was his birthday. 
<laughs> it was his birthday. Good point. Um, but Browder's point was, what's what are these missile strikes done other than sort of harden resolve? Biden's talking about giving the Ukrainians an even better missile defence system. So Putin, everywhere Putin turns in this, he seems to just shoot himself in the foot, so to speak. So I know, but there's no sign of him giving up. No. So, no. so everyone's now wondering if or when he's going to use nuclear weapons. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was mentioned at the city uh, conference too. I think in the, what context? Well, the general the general context was it's pretty hard to price nuclear war into stock markets or any types of investment market, which That's is very um, true. Which is pretty pretty true. It's a fairly binary risk, isn't it? It's uh, either going to be horrible or uh, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> So uh, I don't know how you price that one into your ASX portfolio. You don't, I think. Yeah, I think it's impossible, isn't it? Um, let's move on to questions. Great. Well, I'll start. Okay. Tim says, absolutely love your podcast with co-hosts Stephen and James. With interest rates on the rise, our monthly mortgage interest charge has doubled since May. Ouch. We decided to shift money from our offset account and pay down the principal of the loan. The bank has completed this today. It took me six phone calls and took them three weeks. We need to repeat this process every time to reduce the principal. Tim's question, should it be this difficult to repay the principal of your mortgage? No. <laughs> I'd like to know who the bank is. Yeah. That's hopeless. I mean, it's not in the interest of the bank for the principal to be paid down. They want you to remain a customer for as long as possible. The average home loan at a bank is, in a, is the average tenure of a customer is four years, I found out yesterday. Four years. So we've all got these 25-year mortgages. That's how frequently we change them. Yeah, we're not paying them off after four years. No, we're, just we're not paying them banks. off. We're just shifting banks. Yeah, but so so maybe that shows, you know, the, the bank is is uh, reluctant to let the principal be paid down because that reduces the interest bill. But, yeah, find <laughs> another bank that will help you out. I, I reckon you should find another bank. <laughs> That's right. That's terrible. And, and And tell them, Tim, that, you know – you're interested in your focus is getting the principal down. What's the best structure? I mean, banks are the competition's rife at the moment. Go to a bank with that idea and see. You, go to a mortgage broker with that idea and yeah, see. Yeah. And and tell them this is what I want to do. What's my best way of doing it? Yeah. Well, so because I, I asked um, one of the big four banks last week, you know, uh, how, how, what's the what's the um, the thing that gets you business with mortgage brokers is it is it commission or what? I said no, no. The commissions are all the same. What mortgage brokers are after is speed of yeah. speed of transaction. Yep, yep. They, they want the thing, you know, approved quickly. Or, so that was the approval. Yeah. But not, I mean, I presume a bank that can approve loans quickly can also, you know, do the repayments. Yeah, and the, and the, brokers are used to people coming to them with special requests. You know, I'm a self-employed person or so th- you go to them and say look this is my focus this is what i'm trying to do they'll sort you, they'll say yeah you know there's a zillion home lines out there they'll say this one's a wrong, right one for you yeah so shop around james says a simple yet loaded question is china's economy in dire straits a lot has been written about the housing crisis and the disastrous COVID zero approach then there are long-term structural problems like aging population president xi jinping who kevin rudd has written is a leninist marxist <laughs> Appears more focused on long-term strategic ambitions like Taiwan and the country's capitalist and the country's capitalist leanings, and there's reports of companies taking their manufacturing elsewhere. How should investors interpret all this? 
Uh, well, yeah, uh, China's economy is in dire straits. So what I don't think we understand yet is whether a communist dictatorship can actually have a uh, have a capitalist crash. You know, the yeah. housing, what happens if the housing market does collapse? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's definitely in trouble. Oh, it's been huge trouble. Definitely in huge trouble. But and, we- and the economy isn't. I mean, there's reports this morning that the COVID situation has got worse. Um, they've really got no way out of COVID zero because their vaccines are crap, and they've got a lot of elderly people who they presumably don't want to kill. So, I, I, I don't know quite how they get out of those two issues. It's it's hard to stimulate an economy that's locked down. This has been the problem all year. Yeah, and it flows through to Australia because. A China not stimulated is a China not buying our goods. Yeah. So, yes, I mean, I think James is broadly right. Yep. Uh, Dan asks, I was wondering your thoughts on Treasurer Jim Chalmers hinting at the possibility of changing the stage three tax cuts due to global headwinds in the economy. If there was a global recession, wouldn't tax cuts form a part of government response to stimulate the economy? By the way, I looked up historic tax rates from the 80s and 90s on the ATO website. Tax rates, when adjusted for inflation, appear very high. I finally have some sympathy for the baby boomers. <laughs> oh, don't worry, Good to Dan. Hear. Don't worry, Dan. Their, their free education helped offset those high tax rates. <laughs> um, what do you reckon? Well, I think the Labor government um, ran, ran it up the flagpole last week to see if anybody saluted. Yeah. And nobody did. Nobody did. So, yeah. so they're not going to do it. Yeah. Not not in this budget anyway. And uh, maybe next year. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's much doubt that the stage three tax cuts aren't going to be. No, no one loves them, but it's sort of you know they promised not to. They promised. They promised, and they sort of got to keep. A and promise. they and when they promised it, which is before the election this year. Yeah. Uh, they knew what. The state of the budget was yes, so it's hardly a surprise. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, I think they're you know they're in trouble. Like the the, the only thing they can do is adjust it a little. Yes, I think the money the two hundred forty three billion dollars is gone. Oh uh, uh, yeah. Personally, I, I mean yeah. I can't see how they're going to get out of that. Um, yeah. yeah, I've got to say I, I found it. You know, your point that they ran it up the flagpole. Uh, it's an interesting tactic they've got. They don't mind putting something out, having it kicked around, even if it reflects badly on them, and then seeing where the discussion goes. Oh, I actually don't mind that. It's, it's sort of a bit – it's very different to the Libs who are, you know, much more this is the idea, we shall brook no opposition. That, that, Albanese and Chalmers seem willing to chuck something out there and, yeah, kick it around. Well, it's a bit refreshing, actually. I think it actually reflects – also reflects – a, a, a bit of a disagreement between them. I mean, I think Chalmers is much more in favour of um, chopping the t- stage three tax cuts than yeah. um, than Albanese is. Yeah. So they have run it up the flagpole. I mean, yeah, not the worst thing that's ever happened. We had a discussion about it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> sort media, of what a mature society does in the, a way. The media are obsessed about it a bit because there was nothing else going on. Yeah. So it was yeah. like for a couple of weeks, yeah. it was the only political story. Yeah. Um, is my turn? Tim, it is. Tim says, I love the show and listen while I ride my bike to work in Townsville. Uh, what is the most effective way to transfer shares in my name to my wife to make use of a lower marginal tax rate? Sell them, gift them. Uh, well, I think you can gift them. 
but I think you need you really do need I think Tim to get an accountant to help you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't particularly know the Queensland rules that well. Shouldn't be any specific Queensland rules, but I, I um. Well, the, I, the issue is stamp duty. Uh, okay. Yep. Uh, and whether you whether they need to have a deemed amount on them so that you pay the you pay the transaction okay. pay for the transaction. I just don't know. Right. Well, you need Tim, a, a get Queensland, an accountant. A Townsville lawyer, a Townsville accountant needs to tell you what the uh, what the rules are about about transaction. Taxes. Make a pit stop on the bike and uh, duck in there before work and get five minutes of advice and you should have it sorted, I reckon. Yeah. Jessica asks, I'm curious as to why people so often prefer dividend-paying shares over those that have capital gains, assuming the same total yield. Outside super, it's better to take your investment income as capital. Outside super, surely it's better to take investment income as capital gain rather than dividends because you only pay half the capital gain if the investment was held for 12 months whereas you pay on the whole amount of dividend income. Yes, but you can't you've got no you've got no control over the capital gain from uh, oh. a share. Yeah, yes, you don't have much more control over the capital gain uh, over dividends, but you can see which companies have paid dividends in the history. The tax system here is set up for dividends. So unless you can guarantee, Jessica, that you're going to get a certain capital gain out of a certain stock, uh, it's hard to make sure that you're going to have the same total yield. Your assumption is a pretty big one. That's right. <laughs> I, I mean, mean the, the dividend is actual money in the, in the bank. Yeah. Is yep. ca- uh, dividend is real, whereas capital gain is... Yeah. I mean, uh, the theory is hopeful. Yeah, the the theory. I mean, in America, most a lot of stocks don't pay dividends, and it is all about capital gains. But they don't have the same tax treatment here. No, well, that's right. The other thing about dividends is that you don't pay tax on the whole thing because you get you get it franked. If if the company if the company's paid its tax, then you don't have to pay that portion of the tax on it. Yes. So you, you get you know you get dividend imputation. So there is a there is a tax break on the dividends as well. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Russell says, I've been listening for years and enjoy the podcast immensely. According to CanStar, the long-term average total return of the Australian market is about 10% and the US market is about 12%. Assuming one can ride the volatility, what's wrong with an SMSF strategy of living off, say, 70%, 7% of the capital balance while it's fully invested in the share market? Um, and then he's gone with an example so that you, you, uh, you take out 7% and let the capital grow by 3% to 5%, thereby accounting for the effects of inflation. I'm pretty sure I read this in an investment book somewhere with regard to owning shares in Berkshire Hathaway, which doesn't pay dividends. So this gets back to what we were just talking about, about capital gains and yeah. dividends, I guess. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, although the, the, the thing that Warren Buffett goes on about is uh, let the capital gains compound. Yes. Power Don't take the money out. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, this guy Russell is talking about just uh, selling enough shares to take the money out. Yeah, it's a, well, you can do that. I guess. I guess it depends very much on the stage of life you're at, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, if you've got income from other sources, then you wouldn't do that. Uh, you, you, you know, if you're in retirement, you might need to sell down your capital slowly to live off. But if you're in another, if you're in the accumulation stage of your life where you're still working, I'm not sure why you would no, do that. You wouldn't do that. He's talking. He's obviously talking about how to live off your capital. Yeah, yeah. And living off capital, uh, living off capital in part or capital returns or selling shares. 
instead of just living off the dividends. Yes. Uh, you could you can do that, but I, but as we just said before, um, capital gains are uh, you know volatile. Some yes, years they are. some years you'll go backwards, and you won't have any capital gains to you know to crystallise. And, and it also might depend, Alan, on how long you plan to live for. If you True. continue to sell down the stock, if you continue to sell down, your, your longevity risk might increase. You, you might outlive your savings if, yeah, that's you, right. if you do that. So, so watch it, Russell. Yeah, watch it. Good call. Simon's a little bit alarmed that Stephen praises the 7-Eleven flat white. Coles has a superior crema and aroma. Still $1 and available at Coles petrol stations for 5am morning walks. Uh, we'll trust you on that one, Simon. Uh, I'm still enjoying a hot chocolate over here, though, Alan. <laughs> Why isn't the age pension universal in Australia as it is in New Zealand? Those of us with moderate superannuation balances do not qualify and seem to be no better off than those on a full pension. Uh, well, because we've got, you know, pretty tough means tests in Australia, which um, lead to high tax rates when you, you know, if you... Um if you start to earn a bit of money and it leads to a drop-off in your pension, yeah. the cost of earning that money or the, the effective tax rate on it is very high. It's yeah. true. Well, the other thing is New Zealand doesn't have a – or hasn't – came to superannuation a lot later than us. They don't have a compulsory universal superannuation system like us. It's still yeah, with, it, with our history. So, you know, their, their social welfare net has to be constructed differently. Um, uh, I would have thought, though, Alan, I'm no expert, uh, but I, I would have thought most people can qualify for some part or full pension. Uh, it seems that every retiree manages to do that in some way with a bit of financial advice. Is, is that your experience? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you should be. I mean, I mean obviously, we shouldn't be paying pensions to, pensions to really rich people, but uh, sure, um, you can construct it a bit, I guess. Yeah. 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 Your turn. Peter said, maybe I misheard you, but in reply to a question you and or Stephen said today that an SMSF did not have to mark to market, unlike the big super funds. I believe they most certainly do have to value at market at year end for audit purposes. Yes, indeed. That must have been Stephen. Right. <laughs> yes, I, 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 surely you, get, you do. You get, it, you get it audited. Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Here's one for you. My uh, Nick asks, my ex-boyfriend has fled Russia to avoid being conscripted in a war he doesn't believe in. My gosh. There's no humanitarian assistance that I'm aware of. And with banking and international exchanges locked down, how could he get his rubles out of Russia to support himself? I'm wondering if crypto is his best option. Did, Bill, did you make Bill Browder <laughs> He didn't have any advice that? on this one. But, um, geez, it's a good point, isn't it? I think uh, probably crypto is the best option. It might be, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure... You hear all these sort of reports about control of the internet. I'm not sure how, whether the sort of ch crypto channels remain open in Russia, but I know, it, it, it's possibly a reasonable idea. I'd say so. Um, you do, you'll get a bit of transaction costs and volatility in the crypto you use, but... Um, one more question. We're just about ended. Uh, uh, Tom says, if you were paid in US dollars right now, would you be hanging on to it or exchanging it to AUD? On one hand... It's a lot of AUD as the value of the Australian dollar is declining. On the other hand, the US dollar appears to be a safer, stronger asset. It certainly is. The US dollar is going up. Yes, well, this two, there, a city trader at this conference yesterday, he said there was no way, there's no two ways about it, the Australian dollar will continue to fall because 
Uh, you've got the twin forces of the US dollar strengthening as their rates go up and then commodity prices falling in a global recession. There's only one way the Aussie dollar's going. Yes. So, therefore, if you don't need the money, Tom, leave it in US dollars. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's, that's a question of whether you need the money. <laughs> yes. Yeah, whether, you need to, whether you need to live or eat or whether you can afford to hold for a bit. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode of The Money Cafe. Stephen Maynard will be back next week. So send in your questions to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au uh, and we'll get to them then. Until then, until then, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. Talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>